This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Podcast is found wherever, everywhere podcasts are found. And if you go to YouTube and uh, put in uh, Spirit Matters Talk, uh, will come up. So you'll be able to not only hear us, but to see us. And uh, for those out there that have contributed to help keep us on the air, we thank you. If anybody would like to be part of that group, just go to spiritmatterstalk.com. And remember, our archives are free and open to the public, close to 300 uh, interviews in there. And if you uh, are either listening or watching, please hit the subscribe button. It's free and we'd appreciate that. We have back on our show, uh, Dana Sawyer. He is a professor emeritus of philosophy and world religions at the Maine College of Art and author uh, on biographies on both Aldous Huxley and Houston Smith. He is an expert, uh, tremendous background in Hinduism and, and, um, and Buddhism. And, but today we'll be focusing on another area that he's written and spoken extensively on, and that is the perennial philosophy and especially what's understood and misunderstood about it. So uh, Dana, thank you so very much for taking the time to come back on the show with us today. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. Always great to see you. Rachel, the first time we interviewed, the first time we interviewed, it was just audio. So now we can That's right. to each other. Now, now people can revel in the visuals as well as the audio. Right. Um, welcome back, sir. And um, as Dennis said, we wanted to focus on your expertise uh, on what is known as the perennial philosophy. And I should say, uh, Dana and I have had many conversations about this and many email exchanges, and I just recently read an article he wrote for a, an academic journal on the subject, clarifying certain misconceptions. So let's begin, Dana, uh, first. Uh, it's a two-part question. What got you interested in the perennial philosophy and what is the perennial philosophy for people? What do we mean by perennialism? I got interested in the perennial philosophy a gazillion years ago, back in 1969, as an undergrad in college. Uh, there was a required philosophy course. I took it my freshman year, and we read Brave New World in that course, and Brave New World Revisited. And uh, it really lit me up like a Christmas tree. I got so excited about the ideas. And um, the professor said, well, if you like Huxley, you ought to read this. And so I read the perennial philosophy. And, uh, you know, Huxley was such an amazing writer, it was hard not to be compelled. So that was how I got introduced to it. Um, what is the perennial philosophy? Oh, he's got the Got a book right there. All right, great. It's Dana's book. A newer yeah. edition than the yeah, so I read newer. many years ago. Yeah, came out in 1945, so it's been around a while. Uh, but what is the perennial philosophy is, you know, uh, simply a way of understanding and talking about and thinking about and wondering about um, a particular mystical experience, a particular mystical you know, I, I don't really like the word mystical or mysticism because it's so loose and baggy. And in our time of snarky cynicism, people tend to want to dismiss <laughs> that word or people that think seriously about it. So I prefer um, noetic 
which mm. basically means uh, from noesis, so inner knowing, knowing from the inside out. So Huxley was describing a theory about the value of knowing from the inside out. And? And <laughs> what, <laughs> that's what it is. That's what the perennial philosophy is, is an understanding of a particular type of mystical or noetic experience. And, and from that experience, I mean, uh, yeah, your background in Buddhism, your background in Hinduism, uh, how, how, where, where and how does the, that, those philosophies, those religions, those beliefs uh, uh, tie into the perennial philosophy? Is it their basis? I mean, from, if, if we simply take it as knowledge coming from within, from what I know of, of, of Vedic knowledge, of, of Buddhism, that, that that's what it is based on. But uh, what par other parallels and how do you go more deeply into it? If a student asks, or let's really dig into this, what do they mean by that? Well, you put your finger on something, Dennis. Um, Buddhism and Hinduism both are religions that place a premium on inner knowing, right? Mm -hmm. They're mystical religions in that sense. Mm -hmm. So you're right. And there are commonalities. I listened to your excellent interview recently with Robert Thurman and, uh, and Bob brought some of those up that uh, when we're dealing with that noesis, when we're dealing with that inner knowing, and then we're dealing with rational descriptions of that knowledge, you get nuance in the rational descriptions, but there's Lots of reason to believe they're talking about similar experience. So that to me uh, has always been the essence of what we call perennialism. Um, I read Huxley's book probably around the same time you did. Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> uh, maybe 670, whatever. Yeah, and it had a big impact on me because by I, at that time I had already started meditating and I was deeply immersed in reading books about Vedanta and Zen and all this stuff. And then when I read Perennial Philosophy, what he does is show that uh, all the spiritual traditions, or what he would have called the mystical branches of those traditions, the, 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 the sages, the mystics, um, they all described the same or similar experiences in different languages, just despite the culture, despite the religions they come from and all that. And that's what I took away from it was this universality of the inner experience. Mm. Now, so could you comment on that aspect of it and why people uh, in, your, in your business uh, take exception to it? <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely I can. Um, I agree with what you say. One of the problems that can arise is if you start talking about a universal experience is that people think you're talking about universalism. That's one of the charges against perennial philosophy that doesn't really work. Uh, and what I mean by that is there are universalist religions, right? Uh, Baha'i is a universalist religion, theosophy, uh, Madame Blavatsky and all that was a universalist religion. The perennial philosophy is not 
a form of universalism. You don't, uh, there's nothing to join. There's not a secret club handshake. Uh, there's nothing like that. It's simply stating that um, across the religions, we can identify a common experience. And um, there's several things that my colleagues in religious studies push back against. First of all, we live in a time where a kind of entrenched materialism exists in the academy and nobody wants to talk about noetic experience. They want to dismiss it as woo-woo or uh, new age silliness, whatever. Uh, so there's one problem, right? Is um, because knowledge can be gained in a non-rational way, that certainly doesn't mean that it's irrational. Mm. And, uh, and so there's that piece of it. And then the other piece of it is, if we say there's a common experience across the religions, we're not necessarily saying that it's the core of religion or the essence of religion. And that's another false charge against it. Uh, just stick with me here for a minute. First of all, I make the argument in this article for the Journal of, Trans of Humanistic Psychology that the perennial philosophy is not one unified monolithic silo description of a common uh, noetic experience. It's a family of theories about a common noetic experience. Just like existentialism is a family of theories or romanticism was or German idealism was a family of theories. So you can't pull one particular person who self-identifies as a perennialist out and say, whatever this person says is what they all believe. Again, it's not a church, it's not a dogma, it's a family of theories. And one common mistake is the mistake that all perennialists are arguing that this common mystical experience and, you know, getting down to where the rubber meets the road, that's an experience Huxley called the unitive knowledge. And what he meant by that was an experience of profound sense of merger or union with the sacred, becoming one with it. And um, Huxley saw this as a common experience across the religion. He didn't make the charge that it was the core or essence of all religion because he felt the religion should be free to decide for themselves what their essence of, or core was. So a common experience rather than necessarily uh, the essence is one thing. A, a, a couple of questions uh, along these lines, trying to get my head wrapped around it. Does, uh, uh, does one who uh, accepts the perennial philosophy, is that, uh, would that assume that they're also accepting uh, what we would call non-duality? And, um, and is there uh, variations on, the, uh, on that experience? Uh, uh, that, that Huxley describes? Uh, and, and is it an experience that comes and goes or is it necessarily an experience that must come and stay? So uh, a couple of questions there, but uh, I think these are things that, uh, you know, uh, uh, are stirred up when, 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 uh, when we discuss perennial philosophy. 
Well, you'll need to remind me of you. You got a little bit of a list there, Dennis. Yeah, we well, can man, go so. wherever with it. Yeah. <laughs> Take which one you like. Yeah, let's go. Let's go with the last one first. You know, uh, Houston Smith, who was a close friend and mentor of mine, he said the goal is to turn flashes of insight into an abiding light. Now, at the same time, he said that Houston didn't believe human beings could ever um, reach what is often called enlightenment or full breakthrough where they become living Buddha. See, he believed that um, the mortal coils, as he called them, were too strong to allow for that. Now, on the other hand, Huxley believed we can break through and make it an abiding light. So here is one of the places where we see that theorists differ about this issue. Now, when it comes to your other question about what do we unite with, and uh, dang, that is a juicy question. Uh, Ken Wilbur, you know, makes an interesting point when he's, and he's a perennialist of a particular stripe, makes the argument that usually when mystics are talking about what they united with or melted into was what he calls the great I, that they felt like they merged with their higher self, the great thou, that they melted into and became one with God, a Teresa of Avila sort of experience, or Meister Eckhart, or what we see in Lurianic uh, Kabbalah, um, or the great it, which is something closer to what we find in Advaita Vedanta, or we find in most forms of Mahayana Buddhism, Zen, for example, right? That um, the individual mind became the Buddha mind but it's not that I met the Buddha, if you see what I'm trying to say. So the great I, the great thou, and the great it. Now, if we say, and this is juicy, that you know, there's neurological evidence that uh, subjects who claim to be having these experiences, however they describe or label it, seem to be producing the same neurophysiological signature now, there are preliminary studies, Andrew Newberg, et cetera, but that's a, a really interesting and mm -hmm. juicy place to consider, right? What, what the future will hold in that regard. But Dana, um, a mutual friends of ours who uh, was an academic and made uh, a great contribution to the field, uh, the study of mystical experience. Uh, I remember uh, him arguing that uh, the term perennial philosophy throws people off because we think of philosophy as an activity of, right. of, of rational thought and logic and a speculative uh, cogitation. So he favored the, uh, the term uh, perennial psychology because we're talking about an experience, something experienced within. Uh, how do you feel about that? Does that become an issue, calling it a philosophy? Well, two things to say there. First of all, um, you, you raised the point I've been making, which is there are people that identify as psychological perennialists. So they say, oh, we see a common experience psychologically across cultures and individuals, but they're not trying to make any ontological claims about the nature of reality. And um, Francis Vaughn comes to mind, you know, the great uh, 
psychologist. So um, I applaud that. And it makes the point that it's not a siloed perspective, but a family of theories. Um, what was the first part of your question? <laughs> the, the term philosophy. Yes. Okay. And you will remember that in the perennial philosophy, in the very beginning, Huxley points out that it's not a philosophy in the usual sense. Um, I would remind also that philosophy literally means, a, uh, you know, a lover of wisdom, a lover of wisdom. And perennialists are lovers of wisdom, and they're making the argument that there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, and inner knowing brings great wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, you're right, it's not a systematic philosophy, or I should say, several people have tried to give in a systematic explanation, but it doesn't hinge on those explanations. It hinges on this, uh, you know, a lot of current studies going on with psychedelics now are using a typology created by Stace and Penke and Richards in which they're trying to identify the, the uh, UME, I mean the, excuse me, the, the unitive mystical experience, okay? The unitive mystical experience, the UME. So it hinges on that. And um, I'm gonna get back to something Dennis asked, which is, do all theorists see it as a non-dual? And what's interesting is the answer to that, as far as I'm aware, and I think I'm fairly aware is yes. Most do say, uh, maybe because it's a unitive mystical experience, that um, it transcends all duality. So there we see a place where it wouldn't be, at least theories of the experience wouldn't be in agreement with uh, Sankhya philosophy and Hinduism, for example, that is a dualistic system. Right. Or most iterations of Theravada Buddhism, which are also dualistic. Did uh, Huxley recommend a procedure uh, or methodology for having that mystical experience? That's, a, that's also a really good question. One thing to say there is that when we look uh, at the different theorists, they have very different theories about what the best method is. For example, there's one whole school of perennialists that call themselves the traditionalists. And uh, Houston Smith was for a time a member of that group. And uh, they believed the traditional religions and the traditional mystical traditions inside the religious traditions, Sufism inside the Islam, for example, Kabbalah inside of Judaism, are, are the tried and true pathways up the mountain of spirit. Why bushwhack your way up when there are already established paths? That's mm -hmm. the way they see it. Now, on the other hand, Huxley was much more of a pragmatist in the sense that one size doesn't fit all, uh, whatever works, works. And uh, so he was one of the people that helped instigate the Esalen Institute in California. He was invited there and uh, basically debriefed by Mike Murphy and uh, Price and uh, he said, let's run experiments. Let's start experimenting with lots of methods and see what sticks to the wall and, and what can work. For Huxley himself, um, he was a close, close friend of Krishnamurti. 
Okay. Krishna Murthy's approach was uh, just wake the hell up. <laughs> you know, snap <laughs> out of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I recently read a novel where somebody described us all as high functioning sleepwalkers. <laughs> In a paper, I once described us as wind up toys made out of meat. <laughs> so, you know, Krishnamurti was saying, so shake off all that scale, all that rust, mm, yeah. and re- wake up to your true nature. And so, you know, I don't know how it, you know, worked out for Huxley. Uh, but that was the approach he took at the in the last probably 15 years of his life. So uh, a while ago, I remember having conversations with you because some uh, prominent people in your field uh, took a public issue with perennialism and pointed out the obvious that all religions are not the same. And these people like Huxley and Houston Smith and Joseph Campbell they're saying, you know, they're all the same. They're not all the same. This perennialism is bunk. And, and, and I kept thinking, God, are they missing the point? Right. So um, I'm laughing because who the hell doesn't know that? Yes. Right. And, and right. you know, I, I know Houston was still alive at the time, and he was incensed that people would think that of, the, you know, the guy who wrote the book on comparative religion. But explain what that attempted you know, takedown of perennialism is all about and what the uh, counter is. Well, I, I am assuming you're, you're uh, bringing up uh, the debate between Stephen Katz and Houston Smith. Stephen Katz, <clears throat> excuse me, way back in 1978, wrote an essay that got taken in as received knowledge in academia. And there are still academics who will harp on it or, or not harp on it, on it in the sense that because they accepted it as a dogma all those years ago, they stopped thinking about it or wondering about it. And as very good arguments have come out against Kat's perspective, um, your friend Robert Foreman, Bob Foreman yeah. wrote some excellent critiques of the perspective. They haven't looked at those. They've, they've uh, ignored them. But basically the the argument was that mystics do not all have the same experience because they grew up in different cultures speaking different languages and cultural and neuro-linguistic programming are so uh, powerful that all human experience is mediated or colored by uh, that programming. And so uh, Jews have Jewish mystical experiences, Christians have Christian mystical experiences, Hindus have Hindu mystical experiences, and there's no way for us to get free of that programming into anything like a pure consciousness state, unmediated awareness kind of state. So that was the argument, and therefore mystics in different traditions couldn't be having the same experience. If they have an experience at all, because some of them think that they're just imagining. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly, exactly, exactly. What, what, I, I'm wondering what's next for you. Do you have a book? Wait, no, Dennis, oh, I can't, I want to, I want to let Dana, uh, Dana refute that position. Okay. Well, a quick, re- or, you know, refutation is if we say that Hindus 
uh, look at the moon on moonlit nights and Christians look at the moon on moonlit nights. Do, uh, because they live in different cultures, does that mean there's actually no moon? I mean, they may have slightly different uh, interpretations of what they're experiencing, but to say nothing is there that's shared is, um, to my mind, silly. I mean, anybody can read the complex arguments against that position. They're out there. Is there a rebuttal when you say that to them? From them? Yeah. Not really. They won't, you know... I have to say I can't think of a rebuttal. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> well, they want to go to this place of pure consciousness. They want to definitely pick at that like a scab, like, oh, I don't think there's such a thing as pure consciousness that isn't colored at all. You see what I mean? But mm -hmm. what I argue in my article is that the perennial philosophy doesn't depend upon the existence of a pure consciousness state. Mm -hmm. What it depends upon is an experience of unity with the sacred, however it's interpreted, however it's colored. Mm -hmm. uh, two, two things, that, uh, Dan, I'd like you to comment on. One, uh, we mentioned Bob Foreman. One of the things he argued with Katz about was uh, that people who experience pure consciousness, yes. for whom that's a, you know, an inner reality, and you know, because they they've been doing sadhana for however number of years or they slip into it. It's, it's, um, it's not an arguable point. It's just, uh, you know, uh, an, a, an experience that's self-evident. And he makes, he had to make that argument in, in academic terms. The other uh, thing is um, um, his Smith's distinction between esoteric and exoteric. Mm. which I find very useful in, in this regard. And I'm happy to say he, in, when he wrote the uh, intro to American Veda, he, he mentions that. So maybe you could elaborate on those things. Okay, well, well, first of all, you're exactly right that if you've been to Paris, then if you come back here and somebody tells you Paris doesn't exist, that's very hard to swallow, you know. You've been up in the Eiffel Tower. You've eaten some great cheese. <laughs> you know, that's that's uh, it's silly, frankly. I think ultimately, but uh, you know, on the when we get down, let, let's go to um, your second part of that, uh, Houston's categories. Uh, in Forgotten Truth, which I read in 1976, and it blew my mind. In fact. Uh, I was in grad school at the University of Hawaii at that time, and I met Houston. He came and gave a lecture, and I was like a 14-year-old girl meeting Justin Bieber, you know? I mean, <laughs> that, that book had such an effect on me. Um, he says in that book that, that uh, religion functions on two levels. One he called the exoteric level, the exterior level of um, its beliefs, its rituals, its ceremonies, its buildings, its architecture, its art, its music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also an esoteric level of religion. And that's where the mystics are functioning, an inner level of religion. If we look at religion on the uh, exterior level, then we find difference, tremendous difference. And these are cultural differences, linguistic differences, et cetera, et cetera. But when we look at the writings of the mystics, we start to find something much closer to Paris, 
parity. And Interesting. Again, uh, so, so that's what he, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, Flannery O'Connor, I think, who said, all that rises must converge. Mm. And that was, uh, well, that was one of the analogies Houston would uh, use, uh, or explanations, metaphors. But he always used to always say to me, you know, Dana, uh, religion is like pants. It's plural at the bottom, but up at the top, it's singular. <laughs> and, he, and he once said, and at my age, and he was about 92 when he was saying this, he said, I only want to talk about the waistband. <laughs> That's, That's great. Uh, <laughs> one last question, Dana, for me, and that is, uh, do you have a book you're currently working on or one in your mind you're thinking of uh, getting out at some point? Well, uh, you know, Phil brought it up, which is that I definitely want oh, to right. write a description of the perennial philosophy, an intro to the perennial philosophy for the popular press that not only disentangles illusions about what it is, but um, explains it in everyday language, pulls it out of academia, gets it down mm -hmm. on the street. You know, Phil's a better writer than me, so maybe he should be writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll advise you, Dana. Um, but I do talk about this a lot, you know, uh, and I allude to it in my own work, but I, I, I certainly wouldn't take it on on an academic level. But, but that raises a question, which is uh, the, the issue of evidence. What is the evidence for perennialism other than, you know, looking at the like uh, Huxley did, looking at the, the writings of uh, great mystics in all the different traditions and showing uh, through excerpting passages that they're saying essentially the same thing. Is there evidence that we can now, using the instruments of modern science, using uh, journalistic inquiry, any of that that uh, can support the position? Well, Phil, you're... That's a brilliant question because it brings up some really wonderful things. First of all, for when Huxley was writing, he was comparing textual evidence for mystics that had died in various countries centuries earlier. But now, uh, partially because of what you and I and Dennis lived through the 1960s, that we all got interested in all these mystical, esoteric, uh, noetic traditions and practiced them. So you have practitioners in their 70s now, late 60s, all the way through their 70s, who've been practicing various techniques for 50 years in some cases. And so uh, neurologically, you can study the profile of the output, brain output, and compare those. So there's one thing that's going on today mm -hmm. that suggests perennialism may hold water. And then uh, you can also study mystical experience in real time using psychedelics. You know, we're in the middle of what people are um, referring to as a psychedelic renaissance. Um, so much therapeutic value has been clinically proven to exist um, coming out of this research at Johns Hopkins, at NYU, at Columbia, at Yale. Uh, I gotta say, it makes me laugh to think of people at Yale doing 
psychedelics. <laughs> that is a very conservative place. But but now there's there's a, a chance to study noetic right. insight in real time, mm-hmm. not just comparing mm-hmm. doing textual. Uh, comparative textual research. So that's very exciting, very juicy. And I'm not coming out of it. There's a religious studies. Um, there's a there's a study at, going on at Johns Hopkins right now with 34 religious leaders from various traditions, rabbis, right. priests, ministers, uh, Buddhists, and um, comparing their experiences under um, psilocybin. Wow. So what will come out of that? Um, I mean, I think the next 10 years are gonna be very exciting in that right. regard. I've had, and I wanna just get your take on this. Uh, I've had a, a kind of informal, uh, non, non-rigorous uh, experiences with this. Um, and some, someone, I can't remember who, but came up with this, uh, you mean you just exercise to do? Uh, What's that? Bed? You mean you just took acid at a grain? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought you. This is <laughs> this is the non-chemical version. Oh, non-chemical okay. of, of of in sort of interfaith or uh, gatherings of people from different spiritual traditions, having them describe what they consider their most uh, sacred or the most deepest spiritual experiences, but without using religious jargon. So you can't say, you know, God came to me or I saw Jesus. You you know, what were you feeling? What was the inner perception like? And when people do that, they end up describing some things, you know, there's variety, but the variety is very similar. Coming, you know, what, oh, yes, I experienced uh, unconditional love. I experienced um, awareness or whatever. Mm-hmm. Consciousness without an object. Yes, exactly. Exactly. In fact, you know, um, you and I have taught together uh, several times at Kerpalu, et cetera. And uh, often I'll ask an audience, have you ever had a mystical experience? And a lot of times you'll get, no, not really, I don't think so. And I'll say, have you ever had a touchstone experience you keep coming to that informs your life? And they'll say, oh yeah, oh yeah. And then I'll ask them to describe it. And, you know, a lot of times I'll say, well, why aren't you thinking of that as a mystical experience? It sounds mystical to me. You know, I I think people don't realize and it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. we're human beings. Right. I actually call this multiple amphibians. We live in physical worlds. We live in mental worlds. We live in emotional worlds. And we live in, for lack of a better word, euphemistically, spiritual worlds. So humans uh, are constantly, you know, bleeding over into these experiences that, uh, yeah. that I would call mystical, as, as it seems you would too. And then there's the unfortunate connotations that the word mystical has right exactly whereas if you if you you know i've spoken to parents who talk about this sort of transcendent luminous experience of being with their child or you know a childbirth or people going hiking in the woods and they have these experiences those are mystical experiences but they don't think of them that way right and in judaic christian tradition at least that in in the Western world now, 
even if they accept those experiences, they they don't have they don't embrace them as part of uh, human experience as a common experience as a commonality that people should be aspiring toward. They'll 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 talk about emotional experience. You should have you should feel love. You should feel compassion. Uh, you should have good thoughts, powerful thoughts, this and all. But they uh, when it comes to mystical experience. I, I haven't often heard it say said in those traditions at this time that you know you should embrace and you should work toward having those mystical experiences. So it's uh, and, and maybe I mean some are, but I think uh, you don't hear of that much. Yeah, and we co you know we co create our cultural consensus trance, mm -hmm. and uh, part of what goes on in our culture is when somebody goes, "Hey, you know, I had this thing happen to me the other day." Uh, you know, we tend to say, oh, that's funny. That's weird. Hey, how about those Celtics? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we tend, we tend to dismiss those things or just put them in there. Oh, that's odd. That's funny. Right, right. But if you yeah. actually counted them all up, it's amazing right. how often these things happen. Dana, one last question. Um, to what extent in your experience and in the research do uh, these kind of uh, inner noetic experiences lead to uh, transformations in person's life, what, what Houston would have called altered traits as opposed to altered states. Mm -hmm. Well, like you say, uh, Houston made the argument that the traits matter more than the states, that if they're just flashy experiences, who cares? It's a form of entertainment. But if after these experiences, and this was true of the traditional mystics, your life has changed you start finding your behavior moving in the direction of gratitude, compassion, kindness, et cetera. Now we're talking about something valuable. So the, mm -hmm. the traits matter so much more. Any last uh, thoughts to share before we have to leave? Uh, just that, you know, the people that are, are tuning into your program already know that there's more to them than they thought. <laughs> so keep pulling that curtain away right keep waking up keep uh listening to this program and and hearing the thoughts of elders moving along this uh path of awakening that the world can really use in a in in these days of trouble and consternation uh, we can use insight can we not well put thank you so very much Thanks, Dana. Being with you guys. My pleasure. Always great to see you. Thanks. We'll have you back you when your book comes out. Sounds great. Hit that subscribe button. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks. See you Thank next you. time.